What's the right time of the day to do your creative work? When's the critical point where teams turn the corner? How about this one? Should you take a nap today? On this episode, Daniel Pink returns to the show to share the secrets of perfect timing. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 332. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show gives you access to the practical wisdom that will empower you to become a better leader. Leadership, of course, so much complexity and all the things we're thinking about on a daily basis of how to be effective for others and for our organizations. And one of the things that leaders consistently talk about and think about, not only themselves, but with their teams and in their organizations, is the concept of timing. When is the right time, not only to move on something, but also uh, how do we think about timing in the context of our own lives? And I'm really glad today to be welcoming back to the show someone who's been doing a ton of research on timing over the last couple of years, and it's going to help us to really navigate some of the research, but also some of the practical steps we can take around timing. I think you're going to find a lot to take away from this conversation. I am really thrilled to welcome back Daniel Pink to the show. Daniel is the author of several best-selling books about business, work, and behavior. For many years, he's been listed by Thinkers50 as one of the top business thinkers in the world. His works include the New York Times bestsellers, A Whole New Mind, Drive, and To Sell is Human. His books have won multiple awards and have been translated into 35 languages. He's here today to share the lessons from his newest just released book, When the Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. Dan, welcome back to the show. Dave, thanks for having me back. It's good to be here again. Well, I feel like I just need to get the elephant out of the room up front. Dan, I need to talk to you about your napping, man. You, uh, <laughs> you like me, mention in this book that napping was something you never considered, or if you did happen to nap, you'd be so fatigued afterwards, it didn't seem to make sense. And yet, I was surprised to find you're napping reading through this book. What changed your mind? Yeah, well, what changed my mind, Dave, was the science. And, and you know, as you said, I had napped in the past, and I always felt both physically horrible and emotionally wrecked afterwards because I felt like I was wimping out. And also, I was just so groggy afterwards, it didn't seem to be doing any good. In researching this book, I looked into a little bit of the research on napping, which is actually quite spectacular. And what I found, more important than anything else, is that I was doing it wrong. Uh, I was napping incorrectly. There is an ideal way to nap, and ideal naps are far shorter than I ever imagined. In order for naps to have their restorative effect without any of the downside, and this downside, that groggy feeling that you and I were talking about is called sleep inertia. The way for a nap to have a positive effect without any sleep inertia is for the nap to be only 10 or 20 minutes long. And that kind of nap is in some ways, the, uh, that, that kind of nap is the ideal nap because you get all the benefits of the nap, clearer thinking, boosted productivity, uh, enhanced mood, without the downside of the grogginess. And the ideal, ideal nap is something referred to as a nappuccino. This is now a, a, not a daily practice of mine, but a, at least once a week I do this, and here's how it goes. You have a cup of coffee. Okay, this is kind of weird. You have a cup of co- coffee first. Then I set my phone alarm for 23 minutes. 
you know, you can make it for 20, 25, somewhere, you know, it doesn't really, the precise number doesn't matter as long as it's in that, about that range. Uh, and then I go to a place like a chair or a couch. I put on uh, headphones. I put in, put on an eye mask and I just lie back and nap, try to nap until that alarm goes off. And what I found is typically I'm able to fall asleep, which really surprised me. And one gets better at it over time. And then when that dinger goes off in 23 minutes, I am actually much more refreshed than I ever imagined for such a short nap. And I get the double bonus is that at about that time, the caffeine is starting to hit my bloodstream. And so the benefits of napping are actually extraordinary. And there is a systematic science-based way to do it more effectively. Yeah, that's the part that was really surprising to me is that it takes that long for caffeine to hit you. Uh, so the thing that seems so counterintuitive of having caffeine before you're trying to sleep is actually turns out to be a pretty good practice. And and that's the part that I haven't tried this, but I would imagine, uh, do you find that there's something that works well as far as getting past that point of just getting used to falling asleep during the day for those of us who've never tried something like that? You know what it reminds me of a little bit, Dave, is it reminds me, um, and, and I'm sure some of your listeners meditate. You know, when you first, and I, I am not a, I'm not a meditator. I've tried meditation before. And, and typically when we meditate, at the, at the beginning, it's actually somewhat hard because your mind is wandering, your mind is racing, and you have to try to bring it back to that meditative state. I think that napping is a little bit like that, but, but far easier. So the first couple of times you do it, you may not be able to nap fully and completely, but as you practice, you get better at it. And there's also evidence showing that people who nap regularly actually derive more benefits from napping than um, people who just do it intermittently. Oh, fascinating. What are the kinds of things that come up uh, benefit-wise that the consistent nappers are getting that the rest of us aren't getting? Well, I mean, some of it is, um, not surprisingly, is mental clarity. And that has an effect on your productivity and it has an effect on your creativity. Uh, The other thing is that it ends up being a pretty good prophylactic or pretty good cure for the afternoon trough, this period in mid-afternoon, you know, where our attention starts to wane, where our focus starts to wither. And this is a way to restore some of that. The bigger point on naps is that naps are a kind of a break. And one of the things that the research on timing tells us very clearly is that we are not treating breaks with enough seriousness. And this is, a, this is again, from doing this research in this book, this is, this is something that, where I've changed my own ways. I now every day have a list. I write down two breaks I'm going to take that day to make sure that I take the breaks. And so my view is that breaks are where sleep was 15 years ago. 15 years ago, someone who went without sleep was seen as a hero, somebody who was tough and committed. Now we know from the science of sleep that that person who is sleep deprived is a fool. Uh, He's hurting his own performance. He might be hurting our performance. I think that breaks are where sleep was 15 years ago, that the science of breaks is telling us that we need to integrate breaks more systematically into our workdays, whether we are individual contributors, whether we are managers. We need to start thinking of breaks as part of performance rather than a deviation from performance. This is something that really struck me as I was just reading the first chapter and getting into the book. Um, You call the first chapter the hidden pattern of everyday life. And what was really interesting is that the research is pretty strong in the fact we have three distinct parts of our day for most of us. Yeah. Can can you paint the picture for that of how that looks? Because I, for me, as I started getting into it, I was like, oh, this totally makes sense. And yet I had never thought about it in this context before. Again, this, this book, is, as you know, Dave, is, is very much rooted in the science. And so 
there are different ways that, that researchers have gotten at this question. And no matter how they've gotten at this question, they've reached the same basic conclusions. One way they've gotten at this question is, is analyzing one of the great studies from Cornell is a study of 500 million tweets looking to see how does the emotional content of people's tweets change over the day. Uh, Daniel Kahneman, the Nobelist, uh, Alan Kruger, former chair of the Council of Economic Advisors to President Obama, some other prominent economists did a, a, a study where they had people write down you know, how they were feeling every hour in the day over a long period of time. And no matter how you get at the question, what it shows pretty clearly is this, that we have in the course of a day, a peak, a trough, and a recovery, a peak, a trough, and a recovery. Now, for most of us, it goes in that order. So our mornings generally are the peak. Our after, early afternoons to mid-afternoon is a trough. And in the late afternoon and early evening is recovery. Now, about one in five people are, have a chronotype. That's basically our inclination toward whether we rise early um, and go to sleep early, or whether we rise late and go to sleep late. About one in five people who have late chronotypes, people who are more night owls, they actually tend to go in the reverse order. So they go uh, recovery in the morning, trough in the afternoon, and then peak in the late afternoon and early evening. But regardless, um, what it tells us is that, that the time of day has a material effect on our performance. And we do certain, so there are two key things here. One, time of day matters in our performance. Two, the reason that it matters is that we do better at certain kinds of tasks at certain kinds of times of the day. So, in our peak, again, which for most of us is the morning, we do better at what social psychologists call analytic tasks, tasks that require heads down, focus, eliminating distractions. People do that better in their peak, and for most of us, the peak is the morning. The trough, not really good for anything. Uh, the early after and to mid-afternoons are times when you have actually a remarkable number of medical errors inside of hospitals. You actually have a remarkable number of car accidents. The most car accidents occur in the middle of the night, you know, around 4 a.m., and but also in the middle of the day, between 2 and 4 2 and 4 p.m. So for the trough, you're better off doing your administrative work, answering your emails, filing papers, doing all that kind of garbage. And then in the recovery, we're better off actually doing what psychologists call insight tasks. Those are tasks that require not so much heads down, locked in focus, like analyzing a financial statement, but things that require broader thinking and creativity. And so, you know, as we progress through the day in these, in these three stages, peak trough recovery, we can do better at our jobs and we can lead teams more effectively if we take a, be a little bit more intentional about putting the right tasks at the right time. Yeah, I was thinking about the context of so many of our days in these three different uh, zones and how much of a difference a slight tweak in schedules as far as what you do when could sure. really make. And uh, the, the one that I just I can't get away from thinking about in the book is the example of parole boards, because this isn't just a this isn't just a mm -hmm. like I, I feel better at different times. It it actually makes really different results um, in organizations and oh how people gosh, make yeah. decisions. Yeah. Could you share some of just like how that how that's come up in the research on what parole boards do as far as decision making? Yeah, yeah. This, and it goes even beyond parole boards to our whole judicial system. I, I say this was, as a failed lawyer, I say this with a little bit of, a, of alarm. One of the things that it shows is that if, if so there's some experiments with juries, if you give criminal juries, a defendant and a set of facts, when they're in their peak period, when they're deliberating during their peak period, they don't treat uh, people of different races, people of different ethnicities 
any differently. But during the trough, during that early afternoon period, juries are more likely to convict someone named Roberto Garcia rather than someone named Robert Garner, even on the same set of facts. So that's something alarming. Your, your, your point about the judges is actually also equally alarming. Uh, this is a study out of Israel. It's gotten some attention. I, I think that the big takeaway from the study goes to our earlier discussion about BRICS. So in Israel, you have people who are, who are in the criminal justice system coming up for parole before a panel of judges. These judges are deciding whether that person's sentence is going to continue, whether that person's sentence is going to be shortened, whether that person can go free, whether that person is going to continue to wear an ankle monitor, whatever. So these are, as you say, Dave, these are fundamental questions, um, not about you know, whether I'm going to be X percent more productive during the day, but about human liberty. And so uh, what this research found is that early in the day, judges are more likely to grant parole. As the day goes on, they become less and less likely to give defendants parole, give these prisoners parole. Um, then, though, what's interesting is that when you give a judge a break, 20-minute break, maybe to get a snack, to, to take a break, then when the judge comes back from the break, the, the numbers, the percentage of defendants who end up getting parole goes back up mm. and then continues to decline. And then when they give it... And, and then it reaches a, a very low point. You give a judge a break after the break, boom, it goes back up. And so the, the scary point here is that if you are in prison and your parole hearing happens to be before a judge's break, you're not going to get parole. If you come in after a judge has a break, you're likely to get parole. And, you know, we like to think that the criminal justice systems around the world hinge on, you know, facts and culpability and uh, officials making reasoned deliberations based on the facts. But instead, what we're finding is that this question of timing is having an effect on literally whether people go free or not. Well, speaking of deliberation, uh, we aired an episode a while back on the common trajectory of groups and teams as they mature, you know, the traditional forming, norming, storming, performing. Yeah, and, right. Uh huh. And one thing that's really fascinating to me is what you uncover, not just in, uh, in, in legal situations, but about groups in general. And interestingly, the midpoint of work. And I was wondering if you could share a bit about that, of what that means for teams. Yeah, it's a great point. It's one of my, I, it's, you know, I love all the research in this book. This is like I love all my children. But the, the research on midpoints I found especially fascinating, largely because I was myself essentially ignorant of them. So there's some great research from Connie Gersick, who was at UCLA, now is at uh, Yale. She uh, did some really interesting studies of, of teams. And the way she did her research is that she assembled these teams and she recorded either audio tape or videotape, often both, of every, all the team's interactions. And then she went back and watched the team do its work. And what she found, in contrast to some of the traditional ways that we thought about the trajectory of teams, whether it's form, storm, uh, perform, whether it is this more kind of linear upward climb of progress, what she found is that during the first part of a project, these teams did almost nothing. They, they got to know each other a little bit. They postured. And they only really got started at a certain moment. And for these teams, over and over again, that moment was the midpoint. It's incredible. So you had a team has 34 days to do a project. They get started in earnest on day 17. A team has 11 days to do a project. They get started in earnest on day 
six. She even did this experiment where she assembled teams, gave them an hour to do something. They really got the, all the teams got started between 29 minutes and 31 minutes. Oh, wow. So there's something about hitting that temporal midpoint when people are aware of it. They have to be aware of it. That shows that, you know, gets us going. Um, there's something about midpoints that are galvanizing. Now, the other thing that's interesting about midpoints is that midpoints can have very much the opposite effect especially for individuals. A lot of times when we hit the midpoint of something, including the midpoint of life, there's a kind of a sag that we end up losing motivation. Uh, You see this in a whole array of studies of the life cycle. So the midlife crisis is is a myth, but there is this U-shaped curve of well-being where the bottom of the U is in people's, generally in people's 50s. Um, It's not a cataclysmic drop, but there is across 70-something countries this U-shaped curve where in the middle things start to sag a little bit. And, and I think that the key takeaway here for leaders is this, that I guess it's three things. One, you have to recognize midpoints, uh, which is something I never did before, that midpoints are a thing. So recognize midpoints. You have to use them to fire up rather than just turn over, almost like an alarm clock. The other thing that's so interesting is that leaders can also gain extra motivational advantage if they tell their team that the team is slightly behind. There's some very intriguing evidence from experiments, but also from big data analyses of NBA games, that when teams are behind a little bit at the midpoint, a little bit, uh, they end up performing better. Teams that are ahead at the midpoint risk getting complacent. Teams that are behind too much at the midpoint give up, but there's something about being slightly behind at the midpoint that is very energizing. So if you're a leader, recognize midpoints, use them to to wake up rather than roll over, and then tell your team you're a little bit behind. And that's a way to use to harness the temporal forces as uh, motivators. You mentioned a moment ago that people being aware of the midpoint, is it being aware of the fact of the criticalness of a midpoint, or is it just being aware of the time frame? Like if it, you know, that they have twenty days, and though the, you know, we happen to be halfway through. Yeah, it's both. You you have to be aware that midpoints have this effect, and you have to be aware that there are midpoints. Now, for me, as someone who participates in a lot of projects, most of my work looks, you know, basically anything that I do is project based, and it has a beginning and an end. And I've always been conscious of those, but I was never never really quite been conscious of midpoint. Now that I am, I can see, okay, wait a second. We have to use this midpoint as a, we have to, uh, you know, uh, put down a marker and say, folks, we're at the midpoint. We're we're slightly behind. We got to get going. One of the other uh, words that comes up in the book a bunch, um, especially in the context of teams, is sinking. Sinking to the boss Mm. and sinking to each other. How does that, how does that fit in here with midpoints and thinking about timing? Yeah, I also looked at how groups synchronize in time. This is a little bit different. So if you look at somebody like a rowing team or a choir, or I also spent some time in India writing about these guys who are called Davawalas, who each day deliver 200,000 lunches that they pick up at individuals' houses, deliver them to their loved ones' desks in downtown Mumbai, which is you know, often 20 miles away. Um, they do 200,000 deliveries a day. Um, without any technology, without UPS, UPC scanners, without computers, without mobile phones, using bikes in the train system. And yet they have, they claim to have Six Sigma accuracy. 
I mean, UPS and FedEx have gone to study how they do this. And so one of the ways that teams like that synchronize in time is, what's interesting is they have a very clear boss. So if you look at a rowing team, rowing team has a boss, it's Coxon, who calls out the, who calls out the strokes. If you look at a choir, uh, choirs are a remarkable uh, example of how disparate human beings can suddenly synchronize in time, but it requires a choir director, someone to be in charge. For the Dava Wallas, the thing in charge is the, is the clock. There is a certain train uh, from um, out, the outside of Mumbai to downtown Mumbai that these Dava Wallas have to take. If they miss that train, if that train goes awry, they will not make their deliveries on time. And so syncing together requires a very clear boss, but it also requires a very deep sense of belonging. Teams that synchronize in time often have lang- kind of uh, languages, there's private languages, secret codes, gesture, uh, even touch. There's some interesting evidence from the NBA again about teams that, that touch a lot, high fives, low fives, fist bumps, whatever. Actually, that ends up being a, a, a modest predictor of that team's eventual success. So there, there's, and, and I think one of the interesting things about synchronizing in time, and again, it's one of the things that surprised me, is how fundamentally human it is, that it's something that human beings seem to do at some level naturally, and it has a profound effect on our uh, emotional, even physical well-being, and our propensity to do good. As I was thinking about syncing when I was reading that in the book, I, I couldn't help but think back to your book Drive, which is one of my favorite books of all time, and, and thinking about well, the concept of autonomy. And mm-hmm. so I was, I was interested in how, you know, and on one hand, we, we, we want to have autonomy and at the same time, the sinking nature. How do, you, how do you see those complement each other in an organization? Yeah, that's a really great question. It's something that I wondered about because, you know, I was going where the, I was going where the facts were. And the facts were very clear that in groups that are synchronizing in time, Having that boss is, is, is integral. You can't synchronize in time if everybody is off doing their own thing. It simply doesn't work. That said, I, I think what, what's, what, what happens with these groups that synchronize in time is that they might forego a little bit of autonomy, but where they get other uh, motivational benefits is from another element from that book, which is purpose. Uh, a, a sense of purpose makes groups more likely to synchronize and actually synchronizing gives teams uh, a greater sense of purpose. There's this virtuous circle between synchronizing and purpose that is fascinating. And you see this even in some of the benefits of, uh, of choral singing. Uh, the benefits of choral singing are mind-boggling. I mean, choral singing is essentially as good for you as exercise, which is something as, as a non-singer, a devout non-singer myself, I would never would have imagined. Mm. Uh, it's it's just fascinating. And I was thinking about this. Chip Heath was on the show a few weeks ago, and we had talked about the importance of uh, meaning and leveraging the power of moments. And the, and the word meaning, Absolutely. Kept, it, it kept coming up for me as I was reading this book too and thinking about purpose and drive. And it just, we keep seeing again and again the power of purpose and meaning. And yet, um, yep. my sense is, is a lot of leaders don't really leverage that well. And, I, and I'm curious, when you talk to leaders who have read through Drive and, have, and will read through this book, when you're trying to just get them started on, on just opening the door to think about purpose and meaning a bit, um, where do you start? What, what, what kind of things have you found have been really helpful for people? I find that meaning and purpose often don't sit easily on the tongues of executives. They are words, they're concepts that they're a little bit uncomfortable talking about. 
And so the best technique that I've been able to muster on this is for people to think about themselves, for people to extrapolate from, their, from themselves. And if you ask people, you know, do you have a sense of meaning? What is meaningful to leaders? What is meaningful to you? What is your higher purpose? How do you want to be remembered? What is your sense? Getting them to talk a little bit about themselves and their own sense of purpose makes it slightly less daunting for them to talk about it with other people. And so I'm a big believer in these kinds of things in starting small. I think when the leader does that, the leader will actually, this is not rocket science, the leader ends up setting a good example and a good model for the people in her group. But it also gets the leader a little bit more comfortable with the vocabulary uh, and the syntax uh, of meaning. It's a little bit like when you go to a country that's not, that doesn't speak your native language, but you, you know a little bit of that other language. And when you first start speaking it, you're very self-conscious. You think you're going to pronounce things wrong. But if you're in a place where people are open to it, they're going to be, they're going to be very encouraging. And as you start speaking that language, it becomes much, much uh, easier. Um, so that's my best, that's my best technique is, is for leaders to ask themselves or to get a coach who asks them, what is your sense of purpose? When you wake up in the morning, what do you want to achieve? How do you want to be remembered? Uh, uh, what is your sentence? So opening, the, opening that door for the ability to change and, and change thinking and change influence. And, you know, I, I'm actually, I'm thinking about that in context, of something you just you said earlier on too, of, you know, we're at maybe naps where we were on sleep, you know, 10 or 15 years ago of, uh, you know, our society and our workplaces have changed perspective on that. I was also curious, you know, reading through the book, 15 years ago, you published a book called Free Agent Nation. And I heard you say, I think in an interview a while back that in retrospect, you thought the book was about 10 years too early. And the, <laughs> the, the book you've written here is not about market timing at all. But I was curious. No, not at all. Yeah, I, I was curious if there's anything that you came across in your research that's gotten you thinking differently just about the right time to start something or share something or like we were just talking about, like sharing a different perspective or a different idea with the broader world. I think that the answer is, I think it's a trickier answer though, because yeah, this is really a book about science. I mean, it has gazillions of takeaways, but it's ultimately a book about science. And the science doesn't tell us a huge amount about the best time to start something. It's a little bit idiosyncratic. And what I tried to avoid was this idea of timing as fortune or circumstance or luck. And that, but that certainly plays a role in our decisions. The one area where I think we can get some guidance is, is, on, is on some of the research on beginnings. And there's this principle that three researchers at Penn, University of Pennsylvania, have uncovered that they call the fresh start effect. And what it shows is that in our heads, we have what are called temporal landmarks. It's that certain days stand out from other days in the same way that if you're driving somewhere, certain landmarks stand out in a way that the blur of boring stuff doesn't stand out. So if you're giving somebody directions to your house, you, know, you can give them a landmark to look for, and that landmark will stand out. These temporal landmarks um, end up having an effect on our behavior and our our, our propensity to start something new, like a diet, like a new exercise regimen, like a new productivity regimen. And what it shows is that we're more likely to start and more likely to succeed on a lot of these kinds of things if we choose to start them on a temporal landmark. So what does that mean? 
you're more likely to succeed if you start something new, let's say a diet, again, a new exercise plan, um, uh, a new approach to your work. You're more likely to succeed. You're more likely to go forward and to succeed if you do it, say, on the first of the month rather than the fourth of the month. If you do it on a Monday rather than a Thursday. If you do it the day after a federal holiday rather than the day before a federal holiday. That, um, that certain kinds of landmarks have a galvanizing effect on our behavior and that we become, and, and what we do essentially, and the reason that these researchers call it the fresh start effect is that we have in our heads, like essentially a mental ledger of our life. And just like businesses, you know, have a new quarter or, or a new year, they turn, they, they open up a fresh ledger, say, oh, last quarter was awful, but hey, we got a whole quarter ahead of us. We basically turn the page on old us and say, new us is going to be awesome here on the day after uh, Veterans Day or the day after my 41st birthday. Well, speaking of turning the page, one of the things we talk about a lot on the show is the necessity of learning, making mistakes, uh, sometimes even changing your mind. And you were last yeah. on the show about five years ago when you were talking about To Sell as Human. What have you changed your mind on in the last five years, Dan? A, a number of things. My first answer is, is beyond the scope of individual businesses. And it's not only five years, it's probably 10 years, 15 years. It's a gradual change is I've changed my mind about some of the underlying fairness in American society. Uh, I used to have a very rosy view of how fair things were in America. And um, I actually think that they are less fair than I originally thought. I think that the circumstances of people's birth play a much larger role than those of us who were born into fortunate circumstances understand or are willing to acknowledge. So I've changed my mind. I've changed my mind a lot on, on that particular front. I've changed my mind also a little bit, and it's going to sound interesting from your perspective on leadership. And I'll tell you why, Dave, you might laugh at this, but about 10 years ago, I reserved a domain name and the domain name was leadershipisbunk.com. I was very skeptical of the whole notion of leadership. I thought it was oversold. And I thought it didn't really matter that much. And the more time I spend understanding the ground truth of organizations, the more I become a more converted to that leadership actually does matter. So I've gone from a leadership skeptic to not quite a leadership devotee, but someone who is far less skeptical of leadership than I ever was. So on the macro, it really has to do with uh, a quality of opportunity and on the, on the micro, it has to do with the importance of leadership. And I guess in some ways, those things, never thought about it this way, those things are probably connected. Yeah, indeed. Hey, was there anything that was a moment, uh, speaking of moments, that you remember around leadership that was where you started to change your mind on that? You know what? I'm not sure if there was a moment. I don't, I don't remember a particular one. I'm, I'm, you know, the way I work, the way I think, the way I behave, the core essence of who I am is a tortoise, not a hare. So I, I am such a slow person on so many different dimensions. It takes me a long time to do anything. It takes me a long time to write. It takes me a long time to figure stuff out. And um, so, so I don't really have epiphanies like that. I think what I saw was, were, were a couple of things, was that going into organizations, seeing that the people's approach, that the individual line workers' approach at a, at a similar kind of company was very different depending on who the ultimate boss was. Now, this was not something quantitative. This is something that I, you know, I mean, as, as goofy as it sounds, sort of a vibe that I picked up on, that here were two divisions of the same company. And one, people seemed that they loved what they were doing. And two, 
people seemed like it was a miserable place to work and it had less to do with the substance of their daily tasks. And I, I thought much more to do with the person in charge. Uh, I also, as I start to reflect on my own work experiences as someone who has been on my own for, you know, a lot for 20 years, I, I start thinking that, you know, a lot of the, the work experiences that I had before going out on my own, the negative ones were colored by bad leadership, that bad leadership actually was the reason that I look back on them saying, yeah, that was not a great experience. So it's just been a slow accumulation of things that made me less skeptical about leadership. I'm still not going to be the head of the leadership parade, but I have, um, I, I do think that it, I do think that it matters. And I do think in a way that I didn't 10 years ago, that uh, good leaders can make a significant amount of difference. Well, Dan, you know, one of the things I've always appreciated about your work is, you know, there's people out there who are great researchers. There's people out there who are great communicators. You're one of those rare folks who does your homework, uh, does a ton of research on everything you do, looks at the top science. No, thanks. But then is brilliant at being able to communicate it. I I love your audiobooks and that you always record them yourself because uh, you, you find a way to take things that are... Uh, I think for a lot of us, you know, might be not the most exciting science, but to present them in such a way where it's really actionable to people. So I love this book, just like I've loved all your books. And I hope folks will go Thank check you, it Dave. out. I appreciate that. Um, because I think that there, there's so much here that, I mean, if you're thinking about your own daily schedule, but all, of course, the implications for organizations too. So the book, again, is called When, The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. It's available now. Dan, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate it. It was a pleasure. I really enjoyed the conversation. A few related episodes to today's conversation. If you go on the podcast library on the Coaching for Leaders website and click on the influence topic, one of the shows you will find is the previous time Daniel Pink appeared on the podcast talking about his book, To Sell is Human, and he goes into great depth discussing the importance of selling and sales skills in all of our professional roles, not just salespeople anymore. We all are needing to do a more effective job of influencing. I just heard a statistic this morning on another podcast that the estimates are by 2020, which is not that long from now, uh, up to half of new opportunities, new jobs created in the workforce will be independent contracting jobs, gigs, consultants. Uh, It is becoming the world we live in that we need to be able to influence and market ourselves. Episode 84 will teach you some of the building blocks on how to do that. Also, uh, past episode, if you hit the personal leadership button, which this episode is going to be tagged under, uh, you'll pull up a couple of past episodes that will also be helpful to you. We talked a bit about behavior change today back in episode 196. Marshall Goldsmith was on the podcast talking about creating behavior that lasts. Marshall is the top executive coach in the world. His book, Triggers, goes through the process of what do you want to be thinking about strategically in order to make behavior change in yourself, which of course is one of the hardest things for most of us to do. Episode 196 will walk you through how to do that. Also under the personal leadership topic on the website is episode 217, The Best Way to Make New Habits Reality. Kendra Kinnison was on the show talking about how to set new habits in such a way that you actually 
do them and make progress on changing your behavior. And that's episode 217. And then finally, if you click on the energy management button on the podcast library, there's a ton of past episodes that we've also talked about energy management. We talked about that a little bit today as well. Uh, one of them is episode 233. Cal Newport was on the show talking about how to make deep work happen. If you find yourself getting interrupted all the time, never being able to get into the mode of really doing deep work that's meaningful and that really gets you moving on long-term objectives, Episode 233 is a must-listen. You can access all of those uh, by setting up your free membership on the Coaching for Leaders website. Just go to coachingforleaders.com, activate your free membership. When you do that, you'll get access to the entire past catalog of the podcast with all of those topics listed and many more. You'll also get access to my free 10-day audio course titled 10 Ways to Empower the People You Lead. If you'll give me 10 minutes a day for 10 days, it'll help you to get the most immediate practical actions to become a better leader. You can join for free at coachingforleaders.com. Thank you so much this week to uh, someone who whose username I cannot read because it's so many consonants, but they left a wonderful review on iTunes talking about the podcast library. Thank you so much if that was you. Cosmagnas in Australia. I mentioned uh, last week uh, the review they left on one of the mini course episodes. Cos, thank you so much for the kind review. And also thank you to Emily Nascimento. Emily, I hope I'm saying your name right. What a kind review you left on the US iTunes store. Thank you so much for that. Hey, if you've been listening for a bit and you'd like to leave a review for the show, coachingforleaders.com slash iTunes is where to go. Have a great week and see you next Monday.